Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Everyone loves delicious food from a successful business. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and in this episode, my colleague Vonnie Quinn speaks with one of New York City's most prolific and diverse restaurateurs, Danny Meyer. He's CEO of Union Hospitality Group and founder of Shake Shack. They talked about shaking up the fast food industry and shaping the technological future of restaurants. No further introduction needed. Let's just get going. Danny Meyer, thanks for joining us. 100 Great Shake Shacks. Great everybody. Thank you. Another 17 on the way in 2017 or so. Some franchises outside the country and, of course, obviously the higher-end restaurants that proliferate, and I'm sure you have some ideas on that, too, and we'll get to those. I have to be dispassionate, or I want to be dispassionate this evening. You don't have to be, and, in fact, during the week, you wrote a letter to your Union Square hospitality group colleagues, as you call them, and you talked about how difficult a week it was. And, you know, obviously you have very strong feelings on the election. Would you tell us why you wrote that letter and what the response was? Well, I wrote the letter uh, last uh, Wednesday morning, and um, I hadn't, I don't know how many other people are political junkies like I am, but I was kind of up all night, whether I wanted to be or not. and. Nonetheless, the day went on. I mean, the, the day was going to go on, on on Wednesday morning. And as I was walking to work, as I always do, it just seemed to be the city was, everybody was just looking at their feet. And nobody was, I passed the same people every single day. Nobody was looking up. And it was raining and misty. And, and I got into our office. And I probably got into our office at about uh, 9. I usually get in a lot earlier than that. And the office was about half empty. And of the half people who were there, everyone was kind of crouched over their desks like this, not looking up. So people weren't celebrating all night then? No, apparently not. Um, and, and I just felt that I needed to get my own feelings down and out, because I couldn't even figure out where, where I felt things were at this point. And so I just started writing, and it just flowed out of me. And I wrote it to um, to our colleagues. The easy thing was writing it. It's just the words. I've never I've never had more words flow more quickly, more easily. This is a visual in, representation. <laughs> in my life, but the hard thing was deciding whether or not to hit send. Mm. Um, to send it to all, I guess, almost 2,400 Union Square Hospitality Group um, employees. And I did, and I'm really glad I did. I had no idea it was going to get picked up beyond our company, but it, it uh, basically what I wanted to say was, you know, you got to accept it. This is, this is the best thing about our country, is that we are a democracy, and that uh, you can't be someone who watched uh, whichever debate it was where um, candidate Trump just uh, answer that he may or may not accept the results of the election. And you cannot be someone who heard that and thought that was off base, and then be someone who, when he does win, doesn't accept it. 
And you, you can't have it both ways. You can be very, very disappointed for sure, um, but you can't have it both ways. So the first thing I wanted to do, I think, and this is kind of what leaders are paid to do, is to name reality and then provide hope. And if you don't do both of those things really well, it's kind of hard to expect people to want to try to follow your lead. Um, I've had leaders who it's only reality with no hope, and I've had leaders who it's all hope with no reality. You got to do both. And so I was really just trying to provide myself first. It's therapeutic for me to write it with the reality. And, and then people on our team, and then say, look, here, here's the cool thing. We are actually in a business, hospitality business, that when we do our job well is more needed now uh, than ever. People, to the degree that you know, half the people I looked at on the street that morning were glum. I think we have the antidote to that, which is making people feel better. And it's a mistake to think that the only thing we do to make people feel better is put good food on the plate and good stuff in the glass. Anyone can do that. Um, I think we do it really well, but I think the thing that people want more than anything is, is a good hug. And so that's what I was trying to convey in this letter. Yeah, and it's worth a read. I'd urge you all to read it. It's all over the internet, uh, no matter what your political affiliation. Um, Can I just say one more thing? Please. I'm very, very clear that um, just because of where I am uh, or was uh, politically on this election, uh, I, I think that the election taught us, and I try to say this in the, in the letter, that we're, we're not doing a great job of listening to one another um, as a society. And um, frankly, I think that's how we ended up in this spot. You know, well, too much so yelling and screaming and not enough talking. And a lot of that probably happens in restaurants. But you know, that's why I, I, I bring this up. As in, where's my food? <laughs> well, no, I actually want to know if you've seen an uptake in, in, in people fighting across the table in restaurants as no, you walk through in the no, last. There's a definitely, you don't have to have a very good ear to hear that everybody's talking about politics. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't not. Well, the reason I brought up the letter is because I, I do wonder, you know, many of your customers would have been Trump supporters. And that's one of the reasons why you opened Shake Shack, to give the opportunity to people who didn't make as good a living as even the average a chance to have some of your food and some of your concoctions. And so was there any conflict for you in writing this letter or in having these feelings? Uh, there is no conflict. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, graciously challenge the notion that um, that we opened Shake Shack for the purpose of serving um, Trump supporters. No, um, I, did I say that? <laughs> I don't think that's exactly a, what I said. Maybe it's just a, a leap of, I, of hearing. But but here, no. Here, here's what I want to say. One one thing I do love about Shake Shack is that it does uh, small d democratize the eating experience because the food quality, the sourcing of ingredients is exactly what we would do in a far more expensive restaurant. And because our guests are willing to do away with a lot of things that add cost, like a reservation and a maitre d' and a host and linen and florist and a sommelier, we're able to offer a much, much higher quality food for a much, much lower price. Um, so. I'm with you. It's, it's definitely a democratized way of doing it. But getting back to the letter, um, there's a whole paragraph in the letter that basically says, I'm aware that there are, there are almost as many people in this country who are elated by this, these results 
as there were people deflated by the results. And, and if we do not uh, learn to listen to one another and respect and honor all sides of a, of a genuine debate, we're going to be in trouble. One last thing, and then we can move on to something other than politics, if you'd like. You're the, you're the host here. <laughs> um, I just think it's important for me to, to, uh, to let you know that uh, I grew up in the very middle of this country, St. Louis, Missouri, as the very middle child of three with a really Republican uh, dad side of the family and a really Democratic mom side of the family. And in a time when uh, we debated every single night at the dinner table. Um, and, and, and so my personal politics are that I'm willing to debate and willing to listen. And I had to, because I wanted my mom and my dad to love me. <laughs> and not just one or the other. And, um, and so my problem is, is much more with, with uh, how our society and, and our media actually have led us. You know, when I grew up, we had basically four networks we could watch, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. And, as, and they all needed to sell ads except for PBS. So they were kind of sent, they were kind of right down the middle, just like, like I was. And now that once we got cable TV and you could basically just tune into what you want to tune into and then the internet and Twitter and Facebook, people stopped listening to all sides of an argument and they just started listening to things that would reinforce what they already believed, um, all of us. And so my hope for our politics is that we somehow, gosh knows how, but you know, well, so that's the emotional, social side of it, right? You know, what we talk about, how we talk about it. But when you get down to the underlying data and what's, what's pushing people apart, a, a lot of it has to do with inequality. And, and you're at the coal face in the sense that you do see customers from all income scales. Is it getting worse? And it what is should what we part, do about Is it? what part getting well, worse? Well, in income inequality. And it is. It is. Um, I, I see that as an employer. And one of the reasons that we chose to eliminate tipping in, uh, in our restaurants, beginning almost exactly a year ago with our first uh, restaurant, which was the modern to do it, we're now up to um, four restaurants and we'll have two more when Union Square Cafe opens the week of Thanksgiving. And then it, it'll open with no tipping. We call it hospitality included. And then Gramercy Tavern will be converting to hospitality included in early December as well. So we're committed to it, and we're committed because I'm not a politician, but I am a business person, and what I saw was that the tipping system had contributed to a, an unacceptable statistic, which, which was this. We cannot be a company that says we put employees first, but we only put some of them first and not the others. In the uh, in my entire uh, restaurant career, which started when the first Union Square Cafe opened in 1985 till now, the, uh, the income that a tipped employee makes is almost 300% greater today than it was back then. And meanwhile, the income that a cook makes is almost 25% greater today than it was in 1985. And I think everyone here knows what's happened to the cost of living in New York. And so we in our industry, 
and I, if you're interested, I can explain exactly why the tipping system has contributed to that, have our industry, which is wonderful in the sense that the bar is really low to enter our industry. It's a great first job with someone who's got a heart that cares, a mind that thinks, and a willingness to work. You don't have to come with huge, huge uh, training and skills unless you're going to be a cook at a, you know, a, a restaurant with, with lots and lots of aspirations. But you can even start in the kitchen if you have a heart, a mind, and a work mm -hmm. ethic. Um, but what we're really bad at is then what happens. And our industry, and, and I really believe the tipping system is a huge part of this, as well as um, employers not uh, offering health insurance, not offering parental leave. What we're really good at is keeping people down. And, and so I don't have to wait for a politician to do what I think is the right thing to do. So the idea, we'll get into this a little bit more, because the idea of the tipping system is that they get pooled, right? So the kitchen staff is supposed to get some of the pool tips, but that often doesn't there, happen. No, it's against the law. And it, oh, it's against the law? Yeah, it's against the law. Um, Tip-eligible employees, it's different state by state, but I, I can certainly talk about New York State. You're only eligible to share in tips. And, and by the way, the waiters and bartenders are able to pool them. And in most fine dining restaurants in New York City, the tips are pooled. Mm -hmm. So even though you think you're rewarding Vani for her remarkable service or punishing Danny because your, your food took too long, you're really not because they're sharing the punishment and sharing the reward. But unless someone has spent at least 80% of their time in a customer-facing role, they're not eligible for tips, according to New York state law and many other states as well. So what that means is that cooks and reservationists and um, you know the maitre d', for example, I, I'm not, I'm, it, it's so confusing mm -hmm. that, that it actually just leads to all kinds of problems. But here's what it's really led to, is that at the end of a very, very busy night, the tip, which is really nothing more than a commission, it's a multiplier of the menu price, and the menu prices have just gone up every year for a whole host of reasons. Commodity prices, real estate, insurance, linen, bread, you name it, the prices just go up. And even the multiplier has gone up. Mm -hmm. When I got into business, it was 15% was considered a nice tip. Then it was 17.5%. Now it's about 20 to 21%. But meanwhile, the cooks can't share on that. So they just get squeezed yep. at the bottom. They just get squeezed. And, and so, I suppose the, the, the idea behind it is that there's a career path for cooks, right? Because eventually they might be chefs, and there is, may not be as much of a career path for the waiter. But There's certainly no career path for a waiter with a tipping system because yeah. it's like a drug, and they get hooked on the drug. And it's almost impossible for a waiter to do the next logical thing, which would be to become a manager because the less. opening manager uh, income is about 25% less than... So how is the so revenue, they get stuck. How is the revenue sharing model working? What exactly are you sharing? How much in percentage and margin are you sharing with your with those staff? And uh, and and are you finding it it's still easy to get staff or are they questioning the system? Well, we we basically explained to everyone on our team as transparently as we could why this mattered to me and why I and not just me but 
whole leadership team and why we really thought that that this was the future. And and by the way, the disparity that I'm talking about is only going to get worse and it's going to get worse once again on January 1st when minimum wage goes up yet again in New York and when that happens um, restaurants full service restaurants across the city will raise their prices again and every time they raise their prices and you have to tip on top of even higher prices the disparity between a cook and a, a tipped employee um, just grew even more so once once we explained as passionately as possible why we think this matters then we invited uh, each team to help figure out how they wanted the math to work in their restaurant. And I can tell you that in the four restaurants where we're doing this, the math is slightly different mm -hmm. at every single restaurant. What we did with, in each case was we said that for at least the first three months, while we tweak your ideas for the math, we will guarantee every formerly tipped employee that they will be making at least as much as they were making when we had tips. What was great about that was we didn't have any mass exodus. People trusted, they came along for the ride. But I can, what I can tell you um, is that essentially what they, what they all have in common is that the uh, hourly compensation is well above minimum wage. Everybody likes that because on a really, really slow night, um, you don't have to, you don't have you to don't wonder where the floor is. We are now immune from minimum wage hikes because we're already paying way above the minimum wage anyway. What, what do you think about what the minimum wage should be? I mean, t leaving aside your own restaurants and, and your own line of business, what should, what's, a fair, what's a fair living wage now? I mean, obviously Trump's I, minimum I, wage is very different to what Hillary would have Well, I, yeah, I, I'm not qualified to answer the question because I don't fully appreciate the full cost of living, but what I can say is bogus, is that if the fast food industry is uh, marching to get $15 an hour, um, and a cook who's gone to the Culinary Institute is getting paid $12.50 an hour, that's ridiculous. What, what incentive would anyone have to go into our industry? And it's, it's not, our industry, which I think is a huge reason that people like to visit New York, keep living in New York, we're at risk. We are truly at risk because the, the number of qualified, well-trained, you know, really wonderful people who used to think, I've got to come to New York to start my career so I can have a New York restaurant on my resume, they don't have to do it anymore. Everybody, you know, thankfully, the, the country is so much more excited about food than, they've ever been, than we've ever been as a country, but I don't need to stop in New York. I can go straight home to St. Louis. There's good restaurants in every city in the country. Um, and by the way, if I have to be in New York, I don't have to be in Manhattan because why would I want to commute from wherever I live when there's a really good restaurant a block away from my house where I can make exactly as much money or more than in Manhattan? So we've got to get this thing fixed. And I'm, I'm not positive that Eliminating tipping is going to do it all, but I'm very positive that the restaurants that don't do that are going to be in big trouble. You did ask a question, which was, um, what do we do with the, re the revenue share? So in 100% of the cases, the, re the, the formerly tipped employees have said there were two elements of tipping 
that go away when you eliminate tipping. Actually, three. One we hated, which was the adjusted minimum wage mm -hmm. for tipped employees. In f I think roughly 40 to 41 of the United States, that adjusted minimum wage for tipped employees is $2.13, which is crazy. In New York, it's, I think, $7.50 right now. They don't mind seeing that go away. They, they really think that there should be one minimum wage for everybody. Whatever the minimum wage is for fast food or for a hair salon or for wherever minimum wage is paid, there shouldn't be a different one for tipped employees. They also really wanted to retain the incentive to sell. And that's where we came up with the idea of a revenue share, which is that um, at the end of a week, all of your hours, uh, irrespective of what day of the week you worked, qualify you to share in revenue. So you so as a team, it is a, it's a sales commission, mm -hmm. it's exactly right. And, um, and what they love about that is that in a tipping system, the only way to get a raise because everyone gets paid the exact same hourly rate and everybody pools their tips. The real only way to get a raise in a tipping system is to be the person who's been there the longest, by which you get the right to work Saturday nights and Friday nights mm. where, the, where the tip pool is a little bit higher and you don't have to work Monday lunch and Tuesday lunch. That's not good for you as a guest because it means that every Saturday night it's people with the most longevity, whether they're the best waiters or not, who knows, they might be so over it. Yeah, and also, it, you know, there's more covers on a Saturday night, so there's more incentive to get you in and get you out. That's right. And then if you go for Monday or Tuesday lunch, you get the greenest waiters. So it's not great for you or a Monday night or a Tuesday night. It's also not great for the server because what if by the time I've earned my Friday and Saturday night, I'm a mom or I'm a dad and I actually want to spend time with my kid but I can't, or my family, but I can't afford to do that because then I give up the shift that pays the rent. And so by eliminating tipping, we've made it so that no matter when you work, you earn money based on merit, based on what you've accomplished. Now other restaurants took on the model and then had to backtrack. What, was, what were the problems? Have you had any feedback from other people? Well, we've heard, we've had a lot of restaurants who have called us over time saying, how are you doing this? We totally get it. We want to do it. We're afraid to do it. There's a huge number that are afraid to do it. And I'll tell you why they're afraid. And I'll also tell you, um, in many, many cases it's working. And in a handful of cases it hasn't. Um, I think that the, the restaurants that are afraid to do it um, are mostly concerned about the fact that the menu price in a hospitality-included restaurant that you see, it goes way up because there's, there's no more tipping. There's no line. We're not playing a game. We've all gone to restaurants where they say service is included or hospitality is included, and they still put a line mm -hmm. hoping that you'll throw a couple extra. We're not playing that game at all. And so what you see on the menu is 100% is of everything. Now, that's a new thing for guests and it's a new thing for staff because we have all grown up with a tipping system and even though we know we're going to leave a 20% tip at the end of the night, we don't factor that in when we're gauging 
when we're when we're comparing 20 different menus to each other. And it's almost as if I'm going to take the 26 bucks out of this pocket to pay for the chicken and yeah, I've got I've got the $6 in this pocket for when I leave a, leave a tip, but there but it's a little harder to see $32 on the menu. And I think that there's a lot of restaurants who are justifiably afraid of that. They're also afraid that they're going to lose their their staff if they do this. We've actually found that even though we gave an immediate 20% raise to our kitchen staff, that um, it's working both for the kitchen and the dining room, but we've actually seen that we've had um, an even better experience with formerly tipped employees than we have with kitchen. And I'm, I'd hate to geek out on you for this, but what it means is that the math is working. The, the formerly tipped employees love the new dynamic. They love the fact that when they have a station with five tables, they wanted to take great care of all those five tables. They weren't judging which of those five tables is going to give me the biggest tip and that's the only one I'm going to be nice to. They wanted to be nice to everybody and they actually love the fact that by eliminating the dynamic of a tip whereby someone might punish them, someone might reward them, they just get to do it from their heart. Yeah. And it's better for the guests. And the guests love not buying their coat back um, at the end of the meal, no tipping the coat mm -hmm. check, fumbling for you know a couple dollar bills and that kind of thing. Um, the cooks, the cooks, uh, it's it's working for them as well. But, and this is something we have to figure out. They are getting a bigger dividend, it turns out, in terms of personal time than they are in terms of a 20% raise because they're not getting the same overtime. A lot of the cooks were willing to work, you know, just ungodly hours if it meant getting more overtime. And now that they're getting paid more, we have to be much, much more careful about overtime. So they're actually making a little bit more money right now and saving a lot of time. They would rather, a lot of cooks, it turns out, would rather just work and work and work and make even more money. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a long, long answer to your question, but you can see where it's hard to, to implement this change for, for staff and for guests. And I can say that for the ones where it has not worked, um, I don't know their business and I don't know why it didn't work, but I can, I, I can say that um, our team, not me, but our team has done such a remarkable job of transparently communicating and listening and, and engaging staff members in how the math should work. And that takes a lot of time, and I'm just not sure that everyone's done it that way. But you're not backing down. You're going to continue. It's going to be across all of your restaurants eventually. We're continuing to go forward, and I would not do it if I thought it was going to put us out of business. Absolutely. Now, another quick question on sort of economics before we move on to the technology, because I definitely want to get to that quickly. But, you know, you're from St. Louis. 90% of the U.S. economy is services now. 10% less even is manufacturing. Yet through the whole election cycle, it seemed to be the concentration is on manufacturing, bringing manufacturing jobs back. You've just enumerated several problems in the service sector that, you know, could do with a little bit of spotlight on from candidates. Did it, does it annoy you that there isn't more chat about the service industries, the service sector in the U.S., and how you know improvements could be made there? And there is so much on on a, on a sector that's going away. 
Yeah, and I, I, uh, that's a fantastic question. Yeah, you should have been one of the debate moderators. That would have been a good thing. No, I think that's a fantastic question. And um, we're, we're in an industry that is actually hurting because we don't have enough of an applicant pool. And so many of the things that we're doing, whether it's eliminating tipping or, or um, launching a, a parental leave policy, which is kind of unheard of, sadly, in our industry. It shouldn't even be news that we're doing this. Mm. Um, are to, to say, we want to be the place that you know, a really talented hospitality professional would want to come uh, spend their career, and yet, um, there just aren't, there aren't not enough people. So meanwhile, we hear that there's a whole lot of people who need jobs because they're afraid that manufacturing jobs, et cetera, are leaving. And, and another thing that didn't seem to get talked about a whole lot was that it's not necessarily that the manufacturing jobs went away as much as it is the technology has made it, uh, has put a lot of people out of work because you just don't need as many people depending on what the technology is. That's not about Mexico taking your jobs. That's about technology. And um, so we think about these things all the time. And in fact, the technologies that we are most interested in are not technologies that put people out of work, but technologies that can really um, reinforce hospitality. So I have people saying all the time, oh, why don't you, in your pizza restaurant, Marta, get one of those robots that puts the sauce on the pasta and shoves it in the oven, on, on the pizza dough and shoves it in the oven and pulls it out. Think how much money you would save and why don't you just get rid of waiters and waitresses and just have an iPad on every table. And that just doesn't speak to me. Um, it would be sad, but it'll happen someday. You'll, you'll see it. There's a restaurant that I just read about in fact, it's supposed to be pretty good. I've never been that serves uh, quinoa from an automat. You guys have probably seen it. Um, don't need any waiters or waitresses or cashiers or anything. It's kind of going back to the 1940s, but you know, you just put your phone up to it and it knows your order and the door opens and you can take your bowl of quinoa back to the office. But there's no price to be placed on hospitality at the end of the day, right? Yeah. That's not hospitality, that's just service. I'd like to think that part of why people enjoy food is that it's like the first gift of hospitality they ever got. Well, so let's talk now about the app, because you have, a, a, this is particularly for Shake Shack, right? Uh, you have a new delivery, it's pretty new, it's a delivery Very new. app, and it's only in three of the restaurants in New York. So no delivery yet, it's, Sorry, it's an ordering app. The, yeah. That's right, it's, mm -hmm. it's an opportunity to skip the line um, as of right now, and yeah, it, it it well, launched very near here about uh, a month and a half ago. So why the decision to have your own app? And, uh, you know, I mean, you could have worked through Grubhub, Seamless, the typical apps, but you developed your own. It must cost a lot of money, and there's bound to be bugs. <laughs> right? <laughs> Cockroaches. Um, yeah, no, it's, it was a good, uh, I'd say it was a two-year process to get this right. I think Shake Shack is um, it's as special for how it feels to, to go there and to be there and to do business with it as the burger is yummy. I Believe me, I love the burger a lot. I also like the chicken sandwich a lot. 
the chocolate. And the coffee shake. Don't coffee forget the coffee shake. shake. Is, that's my favorite thing. Um, if you've never tried the coffee shake with crinkle cut fries together, is it's better than foie gras and sauterne. <laughs> a hell of a lot less expensive. Um, but I think it was just really, really important to us to, to, to say that how you order your food here has to be as much part of the experience as it would be if you went there. And it's got to feel like Shake Shack. And we couldn't find anyone who could do that the way we would want to do that. So, and to this day, we don't have a, uh, you, I guess you can order from a last mile delivery company to go pick it up for you, but it's not us doing it. We haven't figured out how would, what would we want to say about delivery? And until we can figure that out, um, we're not, we're not making delivery part of what the app what is. What kind of investment did you make in it? I mean, it's, it's it's pretty beautiful app. It's very simple, and the thing I that I honestly don't know. Okay, I that's, don't know. that's fine. It's good that you're investing in anything, um, <laughs> but you can even you know it's down to the 15 minute slot, so you can just say I want you know my burger ready at uh, what is it seven now 9:45, and you, it's up to you guys to have it ready. That's and right. So the the expansion opportunity there could be endless for each restaurant, but it, obviously it must place operational pressures on you. Right, and, and when we launch anything at Shake Shack, so unlike Gramercy Tavern or Union Square Cafe or the Modern um, or Myelino, where it's one-of-a-kind restaurant, we experiment every day with stuff, just every day. And what's great is it's, it's contained, but with, with Shake Shack, if we get it wrong, we get it really, really wrong, like yeah. we did with trying to have fresh French fries. Wrong um, by a hundred, right? Yeah, that was a big deal. And, and so what we really like to do is to take our time and work out the issues. Um, you would call them bugs, I call them issues. But the, the biggest challenge with, with Shake Shack is that um, we, we don't build in a lot of excess capacity in the kitchen. It's, you know, those kitchens, if you ever see them, they're, they're busy. And, and so what we really wanted to try to figure out, apart from the technology of the app, is, well, what if, you know, a significant number of people shift to using the app to order their food because they want to skip the line? What happens to all the people in the line? Um, do they just get backed up? You don't want to do that to people. And I know with EasyPass, for example, I've been watching this for years. I was a late adopter to Easy Pass, and then finally one day I said, look at all these people flying through, and I'm just waiting here. But what I noticed is that um, Easy Pass would just add more Easy Pass lanes, um, but the line never really changed at the other one. So they figured out how not, you know, if I had to wait 10 minutes to have my toll taken, I still wait 10 minutes to have my toll taken, but they just add more easy pass lanes to keep it there. We have to figure that kind of thing out mm -hmm. with Shake Shack, I, and I just have no idea. You'd have to and come back and give us an update. I will. You it's, also use Apple Watches in some of your restaurants now, and that's starting to be the case. Why, I presume it's a partnership with Apple, or are you just buying the watches? Well, we will it? be. So uh, here's a so situation where I have, Apple? I'll tell you what we're hoping, but that won't take place till we open Union Square Cafe um, the week of Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing there, we're working with a, um, we, we're, we've always liked to, to see what's next and if we think it can help hospitality, which is why I think we were the first company to use Open Table in New York when we brought it to 
11 Madison Park and Tabla back in the year 2000. Um, wow. And open table is in all of our restaurants, but what we're going to do with Union Square Cafe is try a reservation uh, company called Resi, which um, has the capability uh, with us for the first time to pair with Apple Watch. Apple Watch will be worn by our managers and our sommeliers, not, not your waiter. Your waiter won't be putting in your order. We want our waiters to keep making eye contact with you because that's hospitality. But when you are um, late for your reservation, instead of picking up the phone and calling and getting a busy signal, for example, or, um, uh, or, or when the waiter takes your wine order, what will happen is that um, you can simply text that you're running late. It'll ping the manager who will then tell the, the server you don't need to rush mm -hmm. table 62 because the next party is running 15 minutes late. Um, or when the server puts in the order for your wine, it'll ping the sommelier in the wine cellar and have the wine bottle to you much more quickly. Um, and it's just, it's basically using information and technology to make your life better. How about when you're ready for your coat instead of going to the, to the front door and waiting? How about if, if when the... Um, Found, yes, when, the, when you're closing out the check, ping the coat check person who will also have an Apple Watch. It's basically, guys, I mean, it's, this, it sounds like a big deal because it's Apple Watch, but there are many, many restaurants already where you see people wearing those headphones. You know, exactly. we just don't, it just doesn't feel hospitable. I don't want you to feel like you went to a rock concert. When well, you since came you to started introducing all this technology, I mean, there's a big debate in economics right now on whether this is actually adding productivity at all or whether it's just a different way of communicating, like you said. Have you noticed that your restaurants have got more productive since you've introduced some technology? Well, I think Open Table was a fantastic one because they created a, uh, a real marketplace. Mm -hmm. And the more restaurants that used Open Table, the more customers used open table and I think a lot of you know I remember I'm I'm very very uh, um, well aware that there was a time when people would go to their red Zagat book to figure out hey honey where do you want to eat tonight mm -hmm. and you go through the book and what open table did for the first time especially when they got the network effect of having tons and tons of restaurants there was not just where do you want to eat tonight but where can we eat tonight in one place and that has absolutely helped our business um, I think that some of the back of the house systems have helped our business. We've worked for many years with a fantastic uh, company called Avero that provides insights whereby we can, we can know which tables are the most productive, which servers sell the most wine, the least wine. We can coach people. So there's lots of ways that you can put technology to work that actually helps your business. We're going to get to audience questions. A couple of real quick fire uh, questions from me first though. You're almost like an angel investor or a seed investor now as well in the sense that you back some of your previous employees to go into new. What's the one thing that you look for if somebody comes to you with an idea? Because it must be very difficult to tell your own employee, sorry, I'm, I, I, go ahead, it sounds like a good idea, I'm just not going to put my money into that. Uh, there's, but there's probably six things that, that we would want to look at. The first thing is culture, the second thing is culture, the third thing is culture, <laughs> and then there's three other things after that. But Location. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, you know, it, we, we have a culture at Unisquare Hospitality Group, which we call enlightened hospitality. And basically, all, all it says is that even though we all have the exact same five stakeholders, 
we think that, that you can actually have the happiest customers if you put them second. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think the customer is always right, but we put our staff first, the customer second, community third, suppliers fourth, and investors fifth. And that's not right, and, and another way is not wrong, but I would not want to invest in someone who, who said, that doesn't work for me. I really, you know, I read Milton Friedman, and I think you got to put the investor first. Or it just doesn't work otherwise. Um, and I'm, you know, so culture and the way you do things, the way you run your business, the way you make decisions, the priorities you make, means more than, than anything. And then my last question, and I have so many more, but I'm, I have to cede the floor. Can you have a standalone restaurant these days that hasn't already got a reputation? You, you're fantastic for going into ballparks with Shake Shack, for the MoMA, you know, Whitney attached to a museum. Is it possible to get the passerby anymore? It is. It's in New York City, though. I will tell you that um, the real estate has gotten so crazy. You know, we saw it in the, I guess, in the last 15 years or so. The explosion in the number of banks and drugstores alone um, made it, and, and I guess there's a reason that there are that many drugstores and banks. They both want the recurring revenue of prescriptions and deposits. So if they're on every corner, they're going to get it. And it's not the transactions necessarily that happen. It's not how many you know, bottles of Advil I buy, more, more recently than usual. But it's, it's, you know, if they've got my family's prescription business, but what that does is it squeezes out retailers. You don't see mom and pop retailers opening up in New York City anymore. And it's sad. It's sad. And so I think that's why so many of our restaurants recently have been either connected to a hotel, Marta, Mialino, um, North End Grill, mm -hmm. um, or a or a ballpark or an airport where there is um, a larger entity that says our business would be even better if we had an active restaurant as part of the restaurant, as, as part of our larger business. You know, museums are, are great places. They're great places to do business. But in terms of your question with a standalone business, I don't think we would have built the new Union Square Cafe that's going to, for the third time, opening the week, week of Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, and we'll need you guys to eat there a lot. Um, but I don't think we would have made that kind of investment if it had not been Union Square Cafe, where I just have this love affair. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.